The football season is reaching its conclusion and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, our Liverpool writer James Pearce tells us about his interview with one of the club's rising stars, Harvey Elliott. Could his emergence mean Jurgen Klopp trusts in youth rather than big money signings in the current transfer window? George Colkin is here to discuss the collapse of the proposed takeover of Newcastle United. I will of course be asking George about his chat in the immediate aftermath with one of the bid's key players, Amanda Staveley. And what next for Bournemouth and Eddie Howe after the two-parted company over the weekend? That will be answered by Peter Rutzler. But before all of that, some transfer news from me. You will have heard a lot in the last day or so about the likes of Willian, Jadon Sancho and Alexis Sanchez. So let's take a quick look at those three. With Willian, the situation is becoming clearer very rapidly. He had been faced with four main options to stay at Chelsea and extend his contract there or to leave as a free agent and join one of three clubs, Arsenal, Barcelona or Inter Miami. That list of options, as we understand it, is now condensed down to two, those being Arsenal and one other club. We don't know the identity of them, but I'm sure that will become clear very quickly. With Arsenal, we're led to believe a formal offer will be coming imminently of a three-year contract and that Willian is most inclined to take that. He hasn't made a final decision yet, but it would appear that that's his preference and not because of money, because Arsenal uh, are not presenting the biggest financial offer. And indeed, of those overall options, by far the biggest would have come from Miami. But what's appealing about Arsenal to Willian is Mikel Arteta, and of course Edu, who he knows from the Brazilian national team and now Arsenal's technical director, but especially the head coach, Mikel Arteta. Arteta wants to sign William. He's asked for him to be signed. William's been on Arsenal's target list for quite some time, but this is now clearly being led by Arteta, who sees William as an ideal signing, really. He is 31 going on 32, but that means he brings experience. He can help the young players that Arsenal are trying to develop come through. And he can also help bring a winning mentality and culture that Arsenal are trying to build. And don't forget, he comes as a free transfer. And as we said, the contract offer, despite being three years, we're told is not as lucrative as he could have got elsewhere. It's very unlikely that he'll be playing in Chelsea's Champions League tie against Bayern Munich. So as other reports have suggested, this could well develop pretty quickly. If we flip it on to Jadon Sancho, it seems that that deal is moving forward. Uh, my understanding is that the clubs are not in formal talks yet, but that's not particularly uncommon in these situations. There's intermediaries who would broker this sort of deal before necessarily the clubs come to the table and thrash it out themselves. Clearly, 
Borussia Dortmund, Sancho's club, want to get this sorted uh, so that they can crack on with their pre-season preparations. I don't think Manchester United will be bullied into rushing it. If they're going to pay the money that Dortmund want, which is 120 million euros, then they will get there. Of course, all of these deals are done in instalments. And we know that since Manchester United qualified for the Champions League, the move became more attractive to Sancho because, understandably, he wants to play for a Champions League club. So it could well develop this week. But just a little bit of caution. These things can't be rushed through and there is still a lot to sort out. And as I said, the the talks are not at this stage between the two clubs. But things are moving in the right direction for what would be an incredible deal. And then Alexis Sanchez, his time at Manchester United is coming to an end. Many people thought he would go to Inter Milan for another loan spell, but it looks like it's going to be a permanent deal now. And he'll leave for free by the looks of it, which may surprise some people given the calibre of player and reputation. But really Manchester United just wanted to shift his exorbitant wages off of their books. And so Inter Milan will be taking on his full wage without a transfer fee. And a pretty sorry episode for Alexis Sanchez and Manchester United. Looks like it's going to be coming to an end imminently. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around, covering you until the end of the season. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. And don't forget about my new weekly YouTube Q&A show, Ask Ornstein, answering the very best questions provided by you, The Athletic subscribers. Head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel to watch the latest video. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more superb podcast content. The transfer window is open, of course, and all Premier League clubs are looking to improve their squads. But what about Champions Liverpool? Could we see a greater reliance on the batch of youthful talent already in and around their squad? Well, our Liverpool expert James Pearce sat down with Harvey Elliott recently for his first major interview. They look back on a pretty special debut season for the 17-year-old at Anfield following his move from Fulham and discuss his hopes for the future. James, welcome. He's joining us now. Uh, James, that is, not Harvey Elliott. And let's begin, (laughs) mate, with (laughs) uh, Harvey Elliott's first training session, because you refer to that. Uh, It was at Melwood last July, and it seemed to leave a lasting impression on both him and the coaches and players at Liverpool. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. Pep Linders, the assistant manager, went away after that session and and said to Jurgen Klopp, you know, I I think we've got a little diamond on our hands here, was, was how he described it. A lot of the senior players were um were quite taken aback by the not not just the technical ability of of Harvey Elliott but just the way in which he handled himself physically which I think you know is always a big thing with younger players whether they can they can handle that that step up into the senior environment you know, of course he was still only 16 years of age at the time but yeah he made a, a very positive impression and um you know I think that's only grown in the uh, in the 12 months since he made eight appearances in all competitions in the season just gone. Do you see Jurgen Klopp giving him more first-team opportunities next season? Is he ready to be an understudy to Mo Salah, for example, on that sort of right-hand side, cutting in on his left foot? Yeah, I, th- I think undoubtedly we'll see more of Harvey Elliott in a Liverpool shirt in in twenty 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 one. You know, I think the first season was always going to be kind of. Um, one of you know learning and continuing continuing his education. You know I know from speaking to him how much he's learnt from Mo Salah as as really kind of taken him under his wing and and helped him. And there are 
there are similarities in terms of how they both like, like to operate on the right and then cut inside onto their left boot. And then James Milner's another one who's given him a, a huge amount of help. So I think you know he he feels as if he's benefited massively um, and is ready to take the the next step. And of course, he's still so young. You know, he only turned seventeen in in April, only just signed his first professional deal. Um, but you know, there's a there's a good reason why there was such a big buzz around his uh, his his, his that, that deal to sign him last summer because you know most of Europe's elite clubs were trying to sign Harvey Elliott. You know, it's a it's a special talent that's that's playing first team football for Fulham at the age of 15 and and still the youngest player in Premier League history. And um, you know, of of course, you know, you, you we've all known the cautionary tales of you know you. Uh, the potential pitfalls that can be thrown in the path of talented young players and you need some good fortune along the way but um you know he, he certainly got a wise head on those young shoulders oh you mentioned those other european clubs i couldn't help but notice in your interview that he turned down real madrid it's not because he just preferred to join liverpool it's because he was actually a fan of the club growing up a genuine fan yeah i think you know he probably become cynical don't we and probably get used to almost rolling our eyes when we read that, you know, it's a dream come true to play for this club because so often new signings say it. But, um, you know, with Harvey Elliott, he's got the photo album to prove it. Him and his dad had a tour of the Burnabout last last summer when they were weighing up their options. And one of the best stories from that trip to the Burnabout was uh, was them saying to him, you know, I think they reached Sergio Ramos's shirt in the dressing room and um, one, of the, one of the kind of contingent from Real pointed at it and said, uh, you know, would you like us to arrange a meeting with with Ramos? You know, that's something that we could potentially look at. And and Harvey said to them, "No, you're all right, mate. I I, I don't want to meet him after what he did to Mo Salah." Um, obviously a, a reference to to Ramos dumping Salah on his shoulder and taking him out of that Champions League final. So um, so yeah, I think in the end it was quite a straightforward decision for him and his family to to, to pick Liverpool. I think the court of you know the emotional bond counted for a lot, but I think you know the other big thing. Um, was the fact that Jurgen Klopp has got a, a proven track record in putting his faith in youth. And I think when you see the development of someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold under, under Klopp, I think other young players, considering their options, are bound to look at that and think, you know, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind a bit of that myself. As well as the sort of financial issues that clubs are facing due to COVID-19, could this batch of youngsters coming through at Liverpool in their own right be another reason why Klopp might sort of look less towards the transfer market and big money signings and more to what he already has. We include Curtis Jones, Neko Williams and so on in that. Jurgen Klopp, right from the early days of his reign at Liverpool, was was very clear that he would always look within for solutions first of all and then you know the, the the transfer market dipping into that would be would be secondary and you know one of the one of the big strengths of Liverpool is the resurgence of their academy you know Trent Alexander Arnold of course is the is the poster boy for for everyone players and staff at the academy in terms of the inspiration that that he provides but um but yeah when you think you know Curtis Jones and and Nico Williams of course they've they've come up through the ranks rather than being brought in from from another club like like Harvey Elliott has, and there's there's, you know, there's there's plenty of others. You speak to the staff at, at Kirby, and you know they're they're really really excited about you know the sixteens and the under eighteens at the moment. So that, yeah, that's that's certainly an element. I mean, of course, you know there are financial restrictions in the light of the of the pandemic, but you know there's there's also on Klopp's part, um, you know, a, a real excitement and belief in the potential of these young players. I mean, Curtis Jones probably. 
the pick of them in the season just gone and Liverpool view him as almost the, the perfect replacement for, for Adam Lallana, who of course has, has, has moved on on a free transfer to Brighton. Would it be the promise of those young players that would also contribute to um, not seeing through that proposed move for Timo Werner or do you think that was more down to the stark financial realities that clubs like Liverpool are facing? In the Timo Werner case, I think... I think that came down at a time when there was just such huge uncertainty over revenues and Liverpool felt that, what was it, £54 million and then a, a huge investment in terms of wages. You, you were looking at a £100 million plus commitment for someone who, you know, although Klopp was a big admirer of his, he wouldn't have, have instantly walked into that Liverpool team. He would have been certainly in the in the zone of kind of high calibre backup. So I think... Um, you know that that was the overriding reason with with Werner, and then, and then also I think another factor in that was you know once once it became pretty clear that that the Africa Cup of Nations was going to get put back to twenty twenty two, of course, then that also meant that um you know there wasn't that kind of same urgency on Liverpool's part to to make sure that they had another option in that forward line. More than a week has passed now since the end of Liverpool's season. Have you got any more sense of what they might do in the the transfer market, or is it pretty much as we were as a rule? Klopp during his Liverpool reign has has tended to get his business done pretty early I think but this as we all know this is a summer like no other and I think he said himself that 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 things are probably likely to happen later this time around because the, the feeling is that later on in the summer and later on in the window Liverpool will have much greater clarity in terms of the revenues in terms of you know how things like commercial and sponsorship are recovering when you know when they can expect some match day revenue to return, um, because you know that's that's costing the club upwards of you know, three million pounds every time a game happens without without supporters there, and it's well documented they're they're in the market for for a centre half. They need to replace Dayan Lovren, who of course has gone to gone to Zenit. They certainly need cover for Andy Robertson at left back, and I, and I think you know the third priority would be would be another attacking option. Um, but you know, as well, part of part of that business will be linked to what they can get into generate in terms of outgoings. And um, you know, at, at the moment, you know, we're expecting a few other other players to move on. You know, probably Loris Carius trying to find a, a new club for him at the moment. Young Yasser Larucci is likely to be sold unless he has a change of heart and commits to a new deal. And then and then you've got the likes of you know Shakiri and Gruwich and Wilson. Who I think you know their futures will very much depend to a large degree on what kind of offers are forthcoming because um, you know I, I don't see Liverpool just you know there there would be no urgency on Liverpool's part to to offload those players unless unless the deal was right for them especially in a season coming up where I think squad depth is going to be so, so important with the fixture list being so crowded. We are marking the one-year anniversary of The Athletic launching in the UK and our writers have selected their favourite article over the past year. They're free to read for seven days from this Wednesday and for you, James, it was an exclusive interview with Jurgen Klopp. He actually welcomed you into his office, which not many have the privilege of experiencing. So what was it like? <laughs> it was great, yeah. it was. Uh, I'd say it was certainly one of the highlights of my uh, first year with the uh, with the athletic yeah it was um yeah it was 45 minutes i think it was that went by in a in a flash i could have uh, quite happily stayed there for another few hours if uh, if he didn't have meetings to attend and hadn't hadn't turfed me out the door in the end so um yeah it was it was fascinating i think you know i've been very fortunate to to spend a fair bit of time in jürgen klopp's company since he uh, since he first walked into 
to uh, to Anfield back in October 2015, and it was in that situation you're kind of racking your brains on what can I do that's different, what can I do that you, you feel as if you haven't really heard him talk about. And for me, I just thought it was it was a great chance to speak to him about the mental side of management, you know, the psychology, because I think it's an area that he he hasn't he hadn't really talked about much previously, but it's an area where he's in incredibly strong because you know every staff member you speak to talks about you know the environment he's created at, at Melwood you know the the experts he surrounds himself with and and the players talk about you know the the team ethos and spirit and how everyone you know regardless of whether you're Mo Salah or whether you're Andy Lonergan you get treated it exactly the same and so it, it always fascinated me where where that came from you know where you know where where he took his own inspiration from on that front and um yeah, it was it was one of those pieces that you just you couldn't wait to to get back home and and start typing up. No, it was brilliant. You can read plenty more from James over on the Athletic, and you can hear more from him on our Liverpool podcast Red Agenda. Hello, I'm Joe from Tifo, and this is Alex from Tifo. Hi, I'm Alex from Tifo. We're here today to tell you about a little upcoming project that we're doing called Sensible Transfers. Alex, tell the listeners about it. Sensible Transfers looks at where teams are bad why they should upgrade and then picks players based on uh, analytics and video scouting so that it's not the usual tosh that you get in the newspapers. And guess what? There are 10 videos about this going out throughout August on all the biggest teams. There's 11 podcasts on the TIFO Football Podcast covering every team in the Premier League, uh, Celtic and Rangers, the top five in the Championship, and uh, of course, uh, candidates from Serie A, La Liga and the Bundesliga. But that's not all, is it, Alex? Uh, no, it's not. No. This sounds a lot like it. This is a really good advert advert, isn't it? If you are a subscriber to The Athletic, you will find that there is a Sensible Transfers written piece about every team that The Athletic covers. So if we're not covering you in video, or if 10 minutes on a podcast isn't enough, and you're a Norwich fan, let's say, just as an example, you will find that Michael Bailey has written a superb piece uh, all about Norwich under the guise of Sensible Transfers. And you can find that on The Athletic app. Thanks and bye. Last week saw huge disappointment for many Newcastle United supporters following the collapse of the Saudi Arabian-backed takeover. Joining me now is the Athletic senior football writer George Colkin, who of course covers the Magpies for us. Uh, George, I guess let's start by reflecting on Thursday to when the news broke and then you spoke pretty swiftly to Amanda Staveley, the British businesswoman who was basically the driving force behind this bid. Um, what reasons did she give you for the consortium pulling out of this uh, potentially enormous deal? She said that it was because they were being asked the impossible, to use her words, which was that Saudi Arabia were effectively being asked to become a director of a of the football club, that the Premier League couldn't see the the difference between the public investment fund, which is the investment arm of the Saudi state, and the state itself. It was causing uh, the Saudi side of it immense problems. And the other side of it is that they weren't given a definitive end date to the process of the uh, owners and directors test that the Premier League had been conducting for four months. And so 
that was the the backdrop to the statement being released on the on the Thursday. In your pod, Pod on the Tyne, you mentioned that there was a possible statement from the consortium on Tuesday. So were there already rumblings going on, some frustration, more delays than, than expected? Yeah, as you say, on the Tuesday, the consortium were very close to re- releasing a statement that effectively would have called out the Premier League that they would have, the way it was put to me, was that they would be saying that the gloves are off, that enough is enough, and that they would start demanding answers from the Premier League. Now, those demands are still there. They still want to know. um, They still want the Premier League to kind of give public reasons for why they weren't able to come to a conclusion, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But there was a far more front-foot feeling to what was... Uh, to what was going on now by Tuesday evening they'd got no kind of resolution on how to on how um, on how to release that statement and again it's worth it's worth remembering that there are you know one of the real contributing factors to why this has taken so long is that there are three sets of protagonists involved on the buying side and so everything takes a long time when it has to get sent between three sets of lawyers by the Thursday morning the mood had obviously shifted a great deal and I think it you know the final straw uh, according to Staveley was the fact that the Premier League just weren't giving any sort of timeline for a decision either positive or negative but I do think I mean although all three parties signed the statement I do think well I'm I, I know that it was it was Saudi-led. What's interesting is that in a piece that Matt Slate has written for The Athletic, from the perspective of the Premier League, he quotes a source who says, this was 1,000% about piracy. And as you've explained there, Amanda Staveley's view was was quite different on that. I think that's been one of the real sort of difficulties uh, throughout this whole throughout this whole process. It's, I mean, I would I would urge people to, to read... Matt's piece if they if they haven't already I think throughout this kind of whole process we've we at the athletic have tried to sort of in some ways take a step back and present the things that we've told been been told or have heard or know um from as many different perspectives as possible one of the one of the huge confusions has been the fact that that different parties have just said totally contradictory things and so you know you sort of have to read everything and try and 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 you know draw your own conclusions from it but piracy was obviously uh you know a huge issue and 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 probably the major issue now from Staveley's side of it from from the consortium side of it they say that that was historical um by the time that the end came that it moved on to something else if you read Matt's piece, that's not the impression you get at all. And but to you know to take a step back, you know we do have to look at this and be honest about it and say that if you have a uh, if if you have a group which includes the public investment fund of a country where piracy of the Premier League has been rife and unchecked, and albeit moves have been taken to sort of address it, um, and you know that that is only going to be an enormous problem for the premier league so you know i don't think i don't think newcastle fans can and should be blind to that and i mean i do think this is one of the big reasons why it's incumbent on the premier league to explain a little bit more about about the process and Newcastle fans are calling for that themselves. They might not be calling for it for that reason, but I do think that's important. I mean, I I, I believe sort of passionately, uh, actually, that, you know, although I understand that, 
you know, football is a business, and and in in that sense, it's no different from other businesses. But it also is because it's about people, and it's about you know what is the definition of a club? It's a it's a group of people coming together for a common cause, and the people who come together for that cause are the people who are told the least in instances like this. And as custodians of the game, there is a responsibility. I truly believe on organisations to speak to people with a not you know and and with a human with a human voice and in a way that we can all understand and i hope that if if there's no other kind of conclusion to this saga that that might be one of them that we 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 try better as a support as as a sport to 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 talk to people with a human voice the lack of or miscommunication has been one of the most disappointing things in this whole process it it's confused so many of us um to the point that there are now so many unanswered questions remaining. Um, Is that partly to do with the petition that we're now hearing about, or is that more to investigate actually what's gone on here as opposed to the communication? Well, I think it's both. I think it's it's absolutely both. I mean, Newcastle fans are sort of demanding answers. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of anger being directed at the Premier League. Now, whether the Premier League deserves that anger is a different question. And as I say, I do have kind of great empathy for the position that they're in. They're in the middle of what has effectively become, I mean, feel has felt a long, long way from football at various points you know, over this. Um, we're talking about the takeover of a, of a football club in the northeast of England, but it's actually bec- it's felt like it's been a proxy war between two Middle Eastern states and sort of all the mess and propaganda that you have surrounding something like that. I do have empathy for them. I do think, though, and I've felt this all along, that at some point they should, exp- you know, th- there should be an explanation of the way they've gone about this process and and why they were unable to to reach a decision um i think that will that can only be helpful um again to repeat i'm not saying that i think anger towards a premier league is necessarily justified but at the same time because there's so much we don't know i can i can also understand how that anger gets amplified you've dealt there with a lot of the nitty gritty but truthfully what i really wanted to ask you is about the human side the fans that you briefly touched upon there and I would urge people to go and have a read of the column that you've written where it really hits you with searing sort of uh, honesty how brutal this process has been for those in black and white shirts the fans of Newcastle United uh, journalists like you who are up there who have worked around this club for years and years and feel the emotions of it all very in a very raw way um how difficult has this situation been for you and one thing we haven't even mentioned yet is the the conflict involving human rights and uh, which has been a sort of uh, a pervasive issue throughout the process when we've been talking about the the desire for a takeover the end of the mike ashley era but also the concerns we've mentioned the piracy but we haven't mentioned the human rights side i think one of the things that has has been sort of most yeah most difficult and troubling and um uh and, and and difficult to sort of deal with has been to try and pick your way through through that i mean if you look at saudi's human rights record and take that in isolation which in many many ways it deserves to be there are some horrific stories and 
um, appalling stories. And if if that's the only side that you look at and you project it onto Newcastle, is that something that I would want uh, my football club to be involved in? Categorically not. At the same time, there is also, for some people that was a tipping point and I completely get that. And for some people it was the only thing that mattered and I completely get that as well. There are, however, different ways of looking at it and different ways of perceiving it. And I would just point to the one survey that the Newcastle United Supporters Trust did of their members. And they have over 12,000 members now. And something like 96.7% of the people who responded to the question, are they in favour of the takeover or not, responded positively. And so we also have a duty to sort of to write for them and to sort of explain their context. And the context isn't just of a club which for 13 years has had a pretty terrible owner. I mean, not terrible in the, the sense of human rights, but terrible in the, in the sense of lack of footballing ambition, lack of investment, two relegations, average league placing when they've been in the Premier League of something like 13th, a club that was the first to furlough its staff and the last to come out of it and hasn't uh, acknowledge that in public um, and a club which has been sort of responsible for countless nicks to prestige and has kind of shattered its own history in lots of ways the way it's dealt with people and so that was one part of it that people have just had this huge desire for something different and for something better and at the same time when you've got prospective owners who are promising investment not just in the club but in the city and in the region at a time when the city and the region will be crying out for that if it isn't already. And it's that sort of very diff difficult existential question of can bad owners also be good owners? And I think we've all had to find a way through all this. Some people don't care. I've got members of my own family who, who will say quite openly, I don't care who owns the club, I will support the team. And so picking away through all of that and trying to sort of trying to find a way that that you can feel okay about it if that's the right word anyway at this point we'll never know whether they've been whether they would have been good owners or not i think the thing is newcastle fans finally felt that they had a chance and that has been taken away from them and that that is very painful is this takeover definitely off is there any chance it, it could be salvaged because we we saw some words from lee charnley uh, and secondly where on earth do newcastle as a club and a fan base go from here is it definitely over well Stavely herself has left the door open by saying i don't know i don't want to give up and by sort of encouraging newcastle fans to uh, make representations to the premier league and yes the club themselves through Lee Charnley, but I think, you know, speaking on behalf of Mike Ashley, have said never say never and expressed his commitment to the deal. <laughs> what I struggle to sort of see from this point is what is what the pathway would be for it to to be resurrected. I'm not sure. I can't see it. I think what it would take, I mean, Stavely herself has sort of said that all three parties on the buying side would do it if the Premier League gave approval. I don't see how the Premier League will give approval if the buying party has withdrawn. And so it would take compromise on behalf of either Saudi Arabia or on behalf of the Premier League. How we get to that point, I can't say it. I mean, the, the, the last thing I'd want to do at the moment is to give people false hope because um, it, it, it has been 
incredibly draining and incredibly damaging. And certainly, just as a human being, I'm not talking about as a journalist, I'm talking about as a human being. In my head, I've told myself that it's finished and it's time to it's time to move on. That's how I'm approaching it in, in my head. If other people want to kind of carry on the fight, if fans want to do that, that's great. And, you know, we can try and pick up the pieces a bit further down the line. But I think, you know, I think for kind of everybody's sanity or for my sanity I'm sort of I'm I'm treating it as as done done and dusted at least for now because I do think as I say it will take it will take movement and significant movement on behalf of at least one party for anything to change on the other point I think that's incredibly important because where do the club go well someone very very high up at the first team level said to me a few weeks ago there's no way back for mike and what they meant by that was that he had moved on that the club had moved on that emotionally mike ashley if he had ever checked checked in uh, has has certainly sort of checked out but they have to find a way of muddling through now for a lot of people i do think this will be that they'll find it very difficult uh, to kind of come back to the club emotionally because this felt like such a big thing. The, f- the the football side of it got away with it this season. I don't mean that to sound cruel or or having a go at anybody, but it was a it was a tough tough season. They've they've kind of got through it without a centre forward, having spent forty million quid last summer on a striker who is allergic to scoring goals. They have big work to do this summer. And they'll have it with a limited budget, um, and you know. But they need they need to focus because, I mean, I think to, to be to be fair, this is a yearly complaint from someone like me who who is now so cynical that I almost can't see anything else. But I always think to myself, uh oh, this is a big season coming up. But it feels like it now, and the club, the club do have to refocus and do it very very quickly. Otherwise, there's a there's a big struggle ahead. To coin a phrase from your column, it's business as usual, and I'm afraid we don't mean that in a particularly good way about Newcastle United. Uh, this week also marks the one-year anniversary of the Athletic launching in the UK, and to mark the occasion, our writers have selected their favourite article of the past year, all of which are free to read for seven days from this Wednesday. George, your piece is about the, and I quote, maddening, inescapable beauty of the away end that must feel a world away at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's why I wanted to choose this piece. I don't necessarily think it's the best thing I've written, and it's in many ways it's not necessarily my, the favourite thing I've written, but it definitely captured my favourite moment, and it definitely captured one of my favourite things about working for The Athletic. So to put it into context, it was back in January, I think it was, and it was Goodison Park on a weekday night, and I went and stood in the away end, um, and really, what I wanted to do was capture the sights, the sounds, the smells, all the other <laughs> emotions of the away. And mm-hmm. what happened that night were, was that not for the first or last time last season, Newcastle were horrific. It was awful. It was anti-football. <laughs> Nothing happened. And then, uh, and they went two goals, two goals down. And then suddenly, in the whatever it was, ninety-third minute, they stage a comeback, and it finishes two all. And it was the most ludicrous inconsequential moment really but at the time for those few moments it just felt like the best thing ever and I think that um, and so 
What I'm really proud of is that that was our piece about Newcastle from the night. It wasn't a match report. It wasn't about one single player. It wasn't, a, you know, the same quotes that everybody else had. It was just what it felt like to be in the away end and that sort of, you know, it's it's pretty X-rated, that piece, as you might imagine. Um, <laughs> but I just love doing it. And to be honest, it's the thing... It's the thing that I've missed most about football in the last few few weeks um, when it came back as well. That that human interaction, that sense of ridiculousness and daftness and lunacy sometimes that that we have when we're surrounded by fans who are just living this moment. And yeah, some not PC stuff in there, but. I just loved it. It was manic, and I, you know, it's that sort of those those beautiful little force of nature occasions which I love most about football. And that was, yeah, that was that was a real highlight for me this season. George, I love your writing. I'm sure our listeners do too, or our subscribers as well. And uh, hopefully, we can all get back to that sort of scene sooner rather than later. You can read plenty more from George over on the Athletic, and you can hear more from him alongside Chris Wath and Taylor Payne. On Pod on the Tyne. Do you like beer? Do you like free beer? As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash footy and cover just the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Choose the light plan. Easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash footy to get your case free, and don't forget, right now, Ornstein and Chapman listeners get two extra free beers. Over the weekend came the news that Bournemouth manager Eddie Howe had left the club by mutual consent after their relegation from the Premier League. So what happens next for Howe and for Bournemouth? Well, Peter Rutzler covered the club brilliantly for The Athletic this season and joins us now. Peter, you've written a really good piece about this, very extensive in your coverage. You broke the news that he was leaving. Um... It was a decision that followed a week of extensive talks between Howe and the club hierarchy. I was hearing noises from within the game for a while that Eddie was preparing for this moment. I'm sure the club would have been too. Um, So what's your feeling of it from being in and amongst it? Was it a surprise to you or or did you feel that this was kind of inevitable? I mean, it wasn't fully a surprise to me. I think if you you consider the season as a whole and, and, you know, as you say, as, as it does feel like a natural parting in a sense. You know, it's the first relegation. It's the it's the first step back for Eddie Howe on his 
on his journey with Bournemouth. Um, but it was, it did come as a shock in the end, I think, because over the course of the week, the longer it went on, most felt the noises we were hearing that, you know, maybe we, there would be a positive agreement and he would stay on. He, he had 12 months left on his contract and maybe he would stay and, and try and get the club back into the Premier League. There was a really positive statement from the owner on Tuesday night, which sort of backed that up, which sort of indicated, right, we're going to have a real go at it this year. And so when the news did break on, on Saturday night, um, it caught most people by surprise. It, it caught all the staff by surprise. Nobody was aware of it. Talks were kept very much between the club hierarchy and Eddie. And yeah, it took it, it did take everyone by surprise. And it's uh, as much as it does feel like a, a natural parting and as much as it was said to be a mutual agreement between the two, it, it's still a shock. It's still a surprise. And, and it'll be interesting to see how Bournemouth go forward from here. Depending on who you speak to, some feel that it would always have been him driving this decision because he had built up such credit, the right to decide when to go. Phenomenal what he had achieved there. I mean, as you write, he sort of made the impossible possible. He made this club believe and took them to a level that, frankly, no one would have expected. I remember reporting on Bournemouth in the early 2000s and I could never have have predicted that they would get anywhere near the Premier League, let alone spend five years there. But at the same time, these things are all relative. Expectations change. They've got an ambitious Russian owner and um, and the football wasn't the same as it was, in, especially towards the end. Um, despite a couple of brilliant results against Leicester and then Everton on the final day, things it, it actually felt to me like it was whoever sort of pulled the trigger on this decision, that it was actually the right decision for both parties. Yeah, I think so. Um, as you say, like the, the journey Bournemouth have been on under Eddie Howe is truly extraordinary. And you, know, you go back to when he was first appointed on New Year's Day in 2009 and the situation the club were in, you know, adrift at the bottom of League Two, having started the season on minus 17 points, to now being in a position where, you know, they've been in the Premier League for five years and that's all happened under his watch. You know, he spent that time at Burnley and came back. And under him, they've, they've risen through the leagues. And it's it has been an extraordinary ride. But as you say, that that has been a long period. I think for, for Eddie himself, you know, this does present an opportunity now to take a break. He's known to be a workaholic. You know, he's in 6am, 6.30. He's last out. He's determined to put, up, uh, put together every clip for his players, working every hour. So I think for him with his young family, his wife Vicky and his, his three sons, Harry, Rocky and, and Theodore, that it gives him some time that he hasn't had at all over the past decade. But yeah, and then from a football side and from Bournemouth side, you know, the, the things on the field haven't been as good. Performances haven't been great for the past 12 to 18 months, really. Um, and a new direction, a new start perhaps could could serve both well. So you can you can see where that mutual side comes into it. But what you would say, after all that Eddie has achieved... He's earned the right to step aside on his own terms. Sort of reminds me of the Wenger departure from Arsenal a little bit in that the club, that case Arsenal, this case Bournemouth, probably um, knew it was the right time to end it or felt it was the right time to end it. Perhaps wanted to move in a slightly different direction but kind of had to go about that in a very delicate way and, and ultimately leave it to the man who has sort of authored this uh, story. What do you expect? with Eddie Howe now will he take a break will he want to get back in pretty quickly and also this quite unusual situation in that everybody else has remained in place it's just the, the, the 
manager who's gone. Yeah, it is, it's an interesting situation now. And I, I think that maybe the slight difference with, with Arsene Wenger is that you wouldn't, you wouldn't find a Bournemouth supporter that wanted him to go at this point. Um, as someone even put a sign up outside the Vitality Stadium pleading with Eddie to stay after the news was announced. It's, um, it's a different sort of feeling, a different sort of departure. And as much as it's a position where you think, yes, you know, this, it fits, I wouldn't say it's something that everybody wants at all. Um, but yeah, I, at this point, I can't. I don't think Eddie Howe will be jumping straight back into management. He'll take that time to, to be with his family, take that time out to, to reassess. Uh, in terms of the club itself, you're right. The remaining members of staff are all still here. His long-term assistant, uh, long-time assistant, Jason Tyndall, remains. He's going to be the interim manager for now as the club seek to find a replacement, um, which in itself is... is is unusual because obviously Jason Tyndall went with Eddie to to Burnley. Every member of staff has been placed by Eddie Howe. So it'll be interesting to see how they progress going forward. Do they now look internal? Uh, Jason Tyndall's already the early favourite to replace him. Or do they look external? And do they have the time to make the changes uh, for an external appointment? You know, the season starts in you know, six weeks time doesn't leave much time to, for, for wholesale change, especially as a club that is very much built in Eddie Howe's image. Yeah, that's a fascinating situation because if those staff are all remaining in place because of the convenience, the rapid turnaround, then, then that's one thing. If they're remaining in place because the club hierarchy believe in the structure, the vision, the, um, the personnel, and it's a little bit bizarre that they've the the person who was heading that up has been removed but everybody else has been replaced and if they do go internal and continue on the path that Eddie Howe led them on it'd be really very interesting to see if if that proves that there can be continued success in the way there there has been and until this recent period or whether actually it it does require something different a change of personnel and direction so that will pan out in in the coming weeks and months and it's also a key time Pete isn't it for Bournemouth from a financial perspective which you've written about loads in recent months yes it is financially and as we've outlined before relegation will have uh, a considerable impact on on Bournemouth Uh, their revenue will fall by more than half they are very reliant on Premier League television money the important thing this week was the owner's statement reiterating his commitment and outlining his desire to to, to win promotion at the first time of asking, really. He, he said in his statement that he believes the club belong uh, in the Premier League, um, which is a bold thing to say for, for a club like Bournemouth. And considering the financial implications, the fact that their revenue will fall in half because of their reliance on television money, that's a bold thing to say. And the indications I've had are that, you know, that any manager that does come in will be backed. There will be funds available. If a player becomes available, they will go and get them. Um, considering the concerns they have been, they have that's certainly very positive noises. Of course, allied with that is the fact that they're in a position to sell some important players. Uh, Nathan Ake, of course, is the first one to go. He looks he will be joining Manchester City for a deal worth up to forty one million pounds, which is a massive boost. It's a good deal for the club. They're very pleased with it. You can expect Joshua King and Callum Wilson to follow as well, and those sales will certainly bolster the team for next season. I think when you look longer term with Bournemouth and you, you think beyond the parachute payments, which are worth £100 million over the next three years, that's when you, you have to think about whether they should be consolidating in the championship. So that's why this season feels important. You've got the owner wanting to get promotion the first time of asking. They've got these sales coming in. They've got the backing of parachute payments. And that really puts an emphasis on this year. 
because afterwards the other revenue streams your commercial your match day that certainly um will make life a little bit harder in terms of financial fair play well you're focusing there on this year i'm gonna now focus on this week because it marks the one-year anniversary of the athletics launch in the uk and all of our writers have selected their favorite article from the past 12 months they're free to read for seven days from this wednesday pete the piece that you chose is an example of the love bournemouth fans have and have always had for eddie howe could be a bit of a tearjerker after the news of last weekend yes i think it certainly will be now it's it's a piece that tells the story of Eddie Howe's relationship really with, with Bournemouth supporters. Uh, it was 15 years ago. They they bought him back as a player from from Portsmouth. They raised the money themselves, uh, and it just sort of underlines that connection that has spanned the former manager the former manager's 25 year story with Bournemouth. So. Um, Certainly a tearjerker now. Pete, thanks very much for your time. We'll let you get back to picking through the bones of Bournemouth's relegation, but also um, reminiscing about Eddie Howe's time in charge and looking ahead to the new season. Uh, We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, David. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening as always. Do let us know what you think by leaving a comment and a rating wherever you are listening to us. And also, don't forget to check out those free pieces. We'll be back next week.